We are in the Gospel of Luke. We're doing a series on Luke and how Jesus is uh, our Savior and Lord, the compelling life of Jesus that I think just draws us in to listen because he's so different than the rest of the world. Now, for you, those of you that like things to happen in order, uh, I apologize because this year there are going to be times where we jump in and out of Luke. There's going to be times where we do uh, later chapters and earlier chapters. And so I like things in order, but this is going to be a little bit out of order at times as well. I want to just say that out loud in case you're wondering why during the uh, Easter we're in, you know, the later chapters of Luke. Um, so the, the gospel writers didn't write things in chrono- chronology or chronological order a lot of times, so we have the freedom to do that as well. So today we're going to jump into Luke 8. Um, this is one of my favorite passages because it's probably one that I find the most convicting in my life. Um, I, from, a, from the last few years and going through seminary, this is a passage that has uh, driven a lot of the way that I see ministry, the way that I think the church should live. It's, it's out its mission, how it um, exists in the world. And so this is a passage of scripture that I want us to like dig deep in today and see if we might have something from the Holy Spirit that will guide us and direct us and convict us and change us. So if you would, would you turn your eyes to the screen or to your Bible? I'm going to uh, read from Luke. So in the book of John, uh, just just as a reminder, John says this near the end of his gospel. If all the things that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did were recorded, there wouldn't be enough books to hold them all. I love that. Therefore, whenever any of the gospel writers record an incident, when they preserve an incident about the life of Jesus, it's not just because it happened. Lots of things happened. And they never wrote it down. It is written down because it teaches us something about God. In fact, the miracles of Christ, in which we're going to see one today, were never just about some pretty cool magic or healing power. They were always both redemptive and revelatory. They redeemed and they taught people. They saved and they demonstrated what God was all about. So let's read Luke 8, 26 through 39. They sailed, to, they sail, this is Jesus and his disciples, to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he, had been, he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demons into, a solitary, into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. And people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man, a man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. God, we ask you this morning that through uh, this incredible event of your power, that we might understand more deeply um, the depth of your power, its availability in our lives, and the priorities of the kingdom. Amen. So I have two points today. I already said them in my prayer. Two things I want to emphasize. Priorities and power. So you got them early. If you don't remember anything else. Priorities and power. Sometimes I'll pick up books that are not necessarily a Christian book. They're just books that I desire to read. And sometimes I've picked up books that are on leadership. They're, they're on about kind of... Uh, Growing as a person. And one of the things that comes up constantly in those books is this idea that if you want to be successful, hang out with successful people. Has anyone else heard that before? In fact, you should hang out with people that are at least at your level or above your level. If you want to grow as a person, grow as a leader, if you want to level up in life. Uh, if you can go to that next slide. I think that in America, and not all these are wrong. I just want to say that out front. It's not always wrong. I just want to say what I think the priorities are often told to us. Profits, multiplication, scaling, subscribers, follows, leveling up, promotions, raises, bottom lines, influence, fame, accomplishments. These are the priorities this is how you are seen as successful. This is what life is about in our context and in our world. And it's not so different for the church. The priorities of churches are often <laughs> revenue, right? Buildings, multiplication, scaling, subscribers, followers, leveling up taking the next job so you can get more influence and, and more recognition and more money. The bottom line, right? Influence, fame, accomplishments. And a lot of it makes sense when you think about it is if you're going to have a ministry, why minister to one person when you can minister to 10? Why minister to 10 people if you can minister to 100? Why, if God is using you in significant ways, minister to 100 people when you can minister to 1,000 people? God is at work. God's power is on display. People are coming to faith, right? These are all things. And I'm not arguing that that's never the thing that someone's supposed to do. But it's become a disease in the church. How can I have more influence? How can I have more power? How can I gain more people to listen to what I have to say?
And it infuses into every little thing that happens. Have you ever been, I've been, I'm in a room with a lot of pastors. Let me just tell you, it's not always that much fun to hang out with them. Like I'm in a room with these people and it's like, here I am, I'm talking to this person and someone more important walks in the room and it's like they shut down your conversation and they go talk to that other person. You're just like, are you serious right now? So this is not just uh, a cultural thing or a worldly thing. The, the Christians create culture, right? We have incredible influence in the, in the United States of America. We have brought this just as much as anybody else to the world. And I want to say today, not that all of those things are wrong, not that trying to make a good living or uh, growing your business or scaling, like those are absolutely, could be good things, right things, important things. What I'm trying to tell you today is that Jesus doesn't always think that way. Jesus thinks very different than we do, the church does, Americans do. And in this passage, I want you to understand the significance of what's taking place. Because Jesus is popular at this point. He had given a sermon on the plains to thousands of people, most likely. People wanted to talk to him. They wanted him to heal them. They wanted, him to, they wanted to follow him. They wanted to do all sorts of things. And what we find in the Gospels is that, is that people were starting to wonder if he was possibly the Messiah. Yet something peculiar happens whenever Jesus draws a crowd. Often he leaves and goes off to pray. Sometimes... Because the crowd's getting too big, he preaches really hard things so that people wouldn't understand. Sometimes he refuses to do miracles just because people demand it. And in this case, he leaves the crowd, gets on a boat, and goes to a generally Gentile area. But instead of parking his boat, or docking his boat, probably be a better way to say that, docking his boat at you know, the, the, the main port of that town, he decides to dock his boat or park his boat in the tombs, in the graveyard. Every commentator I read said that this was a conscious decision by Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus after speaking to thousands of people, decides that he is going to go and interact with this crazy man. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that Jesus goes to meet this man? Listen to what the, the scriptures say, both here and in Mark 5, where this is also recorded. I'm going to give you a list of what, how this man is described. He's described as dirty. He's described as naked. Imagine this naked guy just running around, chasing after you. That's, like, that's weird, okay? That's odd. He has supernatural strength. Anytime that people tried to bind him, he was able to break free. He was tormented. He was self-destructive. In Mark 5, it says that he was cutting himself with rocks. He's running around yelling. Or mind you, he's naked, running around yelling. He has been outcasted. He had been left for dead. He had been rejected by his family and his community, and he had been left alone to self-destruct and die. He was the embodiment of living death. This man has no status. He has no money. 
In most people's minds, he's scarcely even human. A menace. Almost like an animal. And that's where he was left. And this is the thing. By every standard, he's right. They are, they are right. He lives among the tombs. Now, we may not see this as significant, but living among dead people was very significant for Jewish people. In fact, you come in contact with somebody that is dead, you are what's called ritualistically unclean. Now that, again, may not mean much to many of us in this room, but it was a significant thing because they believed that you could not enter the temple. You could not engage with God. You could not have communion with God while you were impure, while you were ritualistically unclean. And I think that we fail to realize what Jesus could have done. He could have gone to the main port. He could have gone to town and he could have met hundreds of people. Many people would have heard him speak. Many people would have been healed and most would have been impressed by those things. Many people probably would have turned from whatever they were doing in their life and they would have been willing to follow him. That's how charismatic, that's how smart, that's how powerful Jesus was. Yet Jesus intentionally goes to find the one man, not the hundreds, that everyone else has abandoned. Even his own family that was dangerous, that is violent, that is out of his mind. Jesus goes to find him. By every measure, this does not make much sense. The priorities of Jesus and the priorities of the kingdom that he brings really doesn't make a lot of sense. When Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, I think he actually means that. And when Jesus says that he leaves the 99 to go find the one, this is shown right here in this passage in real life. When it says that God does not look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. These are examples that we see throughout the scriptures. And these are different priorities than we see in our regular world. When Jesus says, as Gary preached last week, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that this is the way of Jesus. How different is that to what everyone else says, who says to get vengeance, to repay, to never forgive. Our world tells us to look for comfort, to look for safety, to look for wealth, to look for popularity, to look for power. And Jesus' repetitions in the Gospels are lose your life, take risks, give generously, be last, and humble yourself. So we come to a passage like this and we recognize that the priorities of Jesus and the kingdom of God are utterly different in this world. Many of the priorities are the exact opposite. <laughs> now you might think, okay, well, Jesus is smart. So maybe what he's thinking is that he'll heal the guy that no one thought could be healed. And then that guy will go and everybody will believe in him. Everybody will follow him. It's just a ploy for Jesus to actually get, you know, more fame and more power. This is a stunt actually to win the crowds and the town, but we'd be wrong. It says in the passage that his power and priorities caused people to fear him, that they wanted him to leave, that they pleaded with him to go. 
Jesus wasn't popular, they pushed him away. And what do we make of this? Well, I think there's a couple things that we can take away. Why did the people not respond to Jesus in the way that we'd expect? I don't know about you, but if I just witnessed an incredible miracle of somebody that was out of their mind and then became in their right mind, I would be pretty compelled to say, that person is someone I want to hang out with. That's amazing, right? I have high blood pressure. I'm like, what can you do about that, Jesus, right? It's like, you can heal this guy. I think you can handle that. Maybe he'd say, eat less salt. I don't know what he'd say, but. I think the first thing that we can take away is that miracles don't necessarily compel faith to those that observe them. Jesus says this so much in the Gospels. A lot of us will say all the time, well, I would have greater faith if Jesus just did this. And it's like, well, Jesus did that and people crucified him, right? So that's the first thing. Second, the power of God is a stunning reality. His presence is produces fear and shows that we are much more comfortable with the natural than the supernatural, what we can control than what is uncontrollable. But I think it's even more than just those two things. I think it's about priorities of the people of the town. See, what happens in in this passage, as you heard read, is that Jesus allows these demons to go into 2,000 pigs and they all ran into the lake and died. The 2,000 pigs that died didn't just impact one very wealthy person that had 2,000 pigs. There's no way that that was how many pigs one person had in that time period. This was everybody's pig in the entire town. And when those 2,000 pigs died, it impacted them financially and in their lives in significant ways. And they thought, if Jesus is healing this one man, it costs us 2,000 pigs. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. I think they would have been fine if he came and healed some people that were sick, if he had preached even a hard message that come in conflict with their livelihood. But when it impacts their wallets, that's when they shuddered. That's when they pushed him away. The reality is that Jesus prioritizes people, even one person, over 2,000 pigs, over whatever money you have, And I think that what we have to be confronted with today is this question. As many want Jesus as long as he doesn't impact our lifestyles, are we willing to give up our lifestyles to follow Jesus? Would we allow Jesus to redefine our priorities? Would our focus when we think about church and life and what we are all called to, which is to tell the the news of what Jesus has done for us as he tells this man to do later, are we willing to think the way that Jesus thinks? Will we allow Jesus' lifestyle and calling our lives to reprioritize what we care about? And it's important. And I think that this takes a lot of wisdom. I think it's easy to, to come up here and say, you should care about the one instead of the many. But like, there are lots of situations in our life where we have to make decisions every day about what our, where our priorities lie. And sometimes we're going to make mistakes, but you have to decide at times. You have to think this through. And our natural inclination is, always, is often going to be wrong. Not always. It's often going to be off. 
It's always going to be the, it's, it's often going to be the thing that, that drives uh, us to, to kind of consume things the way that the culture and the world declares it. So we have to be wise. We have to consider. So the first thing that this passage challenges is our priorities. And the second thing is power, is the power of Jesus. And this is the main in, uh, I think, call of the text or the main emphasis of the text. It's on the power of Jesus over the demonic. We need to see this narrative as a power encounter between Jesus and Satan. If you read the Gospels, you can, you can see, and, and I know that talking about demons, in, it's just like weird for people because they're just like, well, I, I don't really know how I feel about all this, Right? But I think from the Gospels, what we can see is that we learn that demons can take over people and have power to control and destroy individuals. We can uh, find here that demons acted in unity and had supernatural knowledge because, they had, they, because of the supernatural sphere in which they came. And this is why they knew Jesus' name. This is why they knew who he was. This is why they cowered in fear when he approached. We see Mary Magdalene had seven demons but this man's fate was even worse. This is a remarkable story because it shows us the power of God over evil, over the demonic, over Satan. That this legion of demons cannot stand up to the Son of God. That they will bow before him and that they will beg not to be destroyed. This is the power of Jesus there's verses that we read all the time and it says, you know, that your battle in this world is not against uh, flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and principalities of this dark age. Do we actually believe that? That not, we may not be able to name things all the time, but that the demonic inf- impacts individuals, but also impacts systems and structures. So when we think about racism... It's not just something that individuals do. It exists outside of that. It exists in systems and structures against the rulers and principalities of this age. And no one in our culture and context besides Christians can name it that way. That we're not just fighting against a system and structure that humans have created. We're, we're, we're fighting against something that is, at its very core, demonic. The demons shudder out of the fear of Jesus. I love the passage. My favorite, one of my favorite lines in all of the Gospels is what comes right before this. And we're not actually going to pre- preach on this passage, so not steal anybody's thunder here. But it says this. Jesus calms the storm, remember? They're, the disciples are in the boat. They're getting pushed around. They're about ready to die. They feel like they wake Jesus up because he's sleeping and calm this whole time. And he basically tells it to be still. And the disciples say this. Who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And so does Satan, the ruler of this world, according to the scriptures. And so what this does, what does it mean that Jesus has this type of power? I think that, the, that it's significant for our own lives, but we have to understand that Jesus did not come simply to defeat Uh, the oppressors of his day. He did not just come to uh, deal with uh, Caesar or Herod. Over and over, Jesus proclaims that his battle is against the evil one, against Satan, that that's the primary reason that he came and existed. 
And so when Jesus goes to the cross, what it's declaring is that Jesus had, has had victory over the dominions of darkness, over sin, over Satan. A lot of times we talk, we talk about the cross, and the, the thing that we talk about more than anything else is the forgiveness of sins. But if you read the New Testament, it's not just that, though that is extremely important. Is that Jesus has defeated Satan, that Jesus has conquered death. So I want to say to you that those of you that have declared Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you've given your allegiance to him, we've been talking about how we receive the Holy Spirit when we are uh, converted to Christianity, when we give our lives to Christ, that we actually have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. And so it's important to understand that whatever strongholds you have in your life with sin and addictions, you actually have power over those things. But instead of just simply rebuking these addictions or rebuking the demonic in your life, remember that these demons were petrified of Jesus. I find so many people trying to cast out demons and I've found, and the scripture seems to indicate, it's the very presence of Jesus that demons run and flee. So if you want to be free... If you want to be free of sin and addictions and things that hold you in, strongholds in your life, that we, the, the principalities of darkness in this world, one of the main ways, ways that you can do that is to be in the presence of Jesus. They were afraid. They know that they have lost. They know that it's over. They say, please don't send us to the abyss. The abyss is the final place of judgment for them. So I would submit to you that you have greater power than you even realize. And the greater sense with which you seek the presence of Jesus in your life, those strongholds will be gone. I want to say this too, is that sometimes this demands new priorities. I just want to say this aside. This, I like to say this is for free for all of you. Some of you are, um, you have some friends, and they like you best when you're addicted. They like you best when you're in bondage. And maybe you need to find the presence of God instead of those people. I think it's easy to be a Christian and still live in the tombs like this man because we live below our privilege very often. I think that this story has greater significance than just what meets the eye because it changes our priorities. It helps us understand the power of Jesus and the power that we have. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us but it's telling us even a bigger story. At the climax of Luke's gospel, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, outside the town, among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he's torn apart on the cross by Roman guards, his flesh torn into ribbons by small stones in the Roman lash. 
And that, Luke is saying, will be how the demons are dealt with. That's how healing takes place. Jesus is coming to share the plight of his people, to let the enemies do its worst to him so that they can't do their worst to us, to take the full force of evil on himself and let others go free. Maybe an easy way to say it is he becomes unclean so that we might be clean. He lives among the tombs and becomes ritualistically unclean like he does in this narrative so that this man might be set free and he does the same thing at the cross for us. And when we are saved, when we are truly set free as this man is, it's amazing what happens in this man's life, right? The thing that he, first these, the, 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 the demons and, and the death bringers in his life are gone. The second thing we see is that this man is at peace. I love that. That these healing Miracles that Jesus brings must be seen as Jesus bestowing the gift of shalom, the gift of peace, of wholeness on all those people that he heals to those who lacked it, bringing physical and a renewed acceptance into society in many cases. So this passage shows us how Jesus is setting captives free, as we read in Luke 4. And lastly, it shows us that those that will follow Jesus will not only live at peace and be set free, but they will be given a new calling and a new mission in life. I always found it odd that Jesus told this man that he couldn't follow him. I was like, come on. That would be tough, right? He, he says, no, actually, you have to go back to all those people that rejected you. Talk about forgiving your enemies. And you have to proclaim what the good news of Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. And I think that we make this term like calling and vocation and all these things like way too complicated. But I think this is probably a pretty great way to just describe what it means to be a Christian. Just tell people what the Lord's done for you. And in this case, he had a lot to share. But if I, think, I think that if we recognize that maybe we aren't so different than this man. Maybe we too have very little, nothing to bring. And yet Jesus seeks us out. He becomes unclean so that we might be clean. And he brings peace. Amen?